Hi, this is Jennifer Matteris. And before I start recording the podcast, I'd just like to say a couple of things. Um, the first thing that I did want to mention is in regards to our Hillsborough disaster episode, which was episode number two. Today, news came out of Great Britain that a jury in the most recent inquest for the Hillsborough disaster found that the 96 fans who died as a result of the disaster were unlawfully killed. That was the phrase. Unlawfully killed due to gross negligence from the police departments. That they died through no fault of their own. This was something that the families and the supporters had been fighting for for a long time. You know, I'm, I'm, I've said before, and I'll say it again, I am not a big fan of conspiracies. I like solid evidence. I like a solid evidence trail. And this is one of the most solid evidence trails of conspiracy you're ever going to find. And so the fact that they were able to um, look at the evidence before them and see that so much of it was wrong and, and, and that there was so much evidence of a cover-up and, and, and bias in both the media and, and the police departments and the government and all of these different places and go from there is, is a really good thing. And I saw that there was a video of family members of the 96 standing outside of, of the courthouse and singing, You'll Never Walk Alone. I didn't get a chance to read it because I was too busy finishing the research for this particular episode. But I'm very happy for the victims and families of, of the uh, Hillsborough disaster. And I really do hope that this does uh, progress further and, and that there is some sort of punishment that goes along. I do know that I did see a tweet from the South Yorkshire Police Department that they did res accept responsibility um, and accept the, the this jury's decision. So, you know, that's one start. It would be really nice to see the Sun uh, apologize to the families of the victims considering their notorious newspaper coverage. And I believe the Times as well also was uh, was a problem there, uh, I believe, although uh, the Sun is the, the more notorious um, uh, in terms of, of awful Hillsborough coverage. But fingers crossed for the families of the victims. They, they have gone through a lot since 1989, and, and hopefully they will uh, see justice. The second thing that I wanted to bring up is helping to support the podcast. Um, I... I hate making it sound like I'm begging for money, um, but, um, you know, if you do want to help support the podcast and you don't have any money, um, there's always, you know, favoriting the Facebook, um, uh, you know, there's going on iTunes and rating reviewing so that people can find the podcast, um, telling people, sharing the podcast. If you would like what I'm doing here, it's a labor of love. I'm having a great time. This is exactly the sort of thing that I didn't know I wanted to do. So it's really a lot of fun that I'm having here. But I also did want to say that if you want to help support the, the podcast monetarily or more aptly help support, support the podcaster monetarily, um, it would really be appreciated. I do put a lot of effort and a, a bit of my um, personal funds into, um, you know, research and, and um, you know, my time. And, 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 and while I'm having a blast, um, you know, I also don't make a lot of money in my day job. So um, if you like the podcast and you'd like to help support it, there's a couple of ways to do that. Um, help support it with money. That is, I understand completely if you can't afford to, because 
God knows I can't afford to a lot of the time with some things that I like to support as well. Um, but if you'd like to help support the podcast monetarily, or like I said, support the podcaster monetarily, there's there's two ways to do that. I do have a Patreon set up for Disaster Area specifically. It is really easy to find on Patreon. And, you know, um, if you pledge $25 a month, you get to choose a subject for an episode within reason, of course. Um, I do uh, reserve the right to reject any disasters, but, you know, for the most part, you know, just kind of, I will see. <laughs> um, and then, there, of course, there's the other way to support the um, the podcast, which is to throw a couple of bucks in the tip, tip jar. Basically, um, the PayPal for the, the podcast is disasterarea at mail.com. So if you'd like to throw a couple of bucks in, into, you know, the the tip, the PayPal tip jar, such as it is, it, it can help with things like you know, keeping me in internet coverage and paying for my cell phone so that I can record the podcast, which I figured out how to do all on my cell phone now. I'm having a lot of fun with that, and um, you know, helping to pay the bills, keeping me fed, keeping me in Pepsi so I have something to drink while I'm recording the podcast, um, and uh, you know. I like I said I really appreciate any help. I I don't make a lot of money and and this is a labor of love and I really just want to continue doing it. So any little bit helps. And the last thing I did want to mention is that the podcast awards are open for nominations. Um I did register the podcasts for the podcast awards which unsurprisingly are at podcastawards.com. Um so if you want to go and nominate the podcast you have until the 30th. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you think I'm doing a good job here, if you're really enjoying the podcast, now would be the time to do that. Um, and now that I am done with my notes, um, thank you very much for listening. As I said, my name is Jennifer Matteris, and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 7 the Jonestown Massacre, November 18th, 1978. 918 deceased, 11 injured. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. If you see me as your father, I'll be your father. If you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. Jim Jones, as quoted by Hugh Fortson Jr. in Jonestown, the life and death of People's Temple. This is a letter written by a man named Dick Tropp. He was a former English instructor, and as he sat in the pavilion in Jonestown on November 18th, he wrote this note. November 18th, 1978, the last day of People's Temple. To whomever finds this note, collect all the tapes, all the writing, all the history. The story of this movement, this action, must be examined over and over. It must be understood in all of its incredible dimensions. Words fail. We have pledged our lives to this great cause. We are proud to have something to die for. We do not fear death. We hope that the world will someday realize the ideals of brotherhood, justice, and equality that Jim Jones has lived and died for. We have all chosen to die for this cause. We know there is no way that we can avoid misinterpretation. 
but Jim Jones and this movement were born too soon. The world was not ready to let us live. As I write these words, people are silently amassed, taking a quick potion, inducing sleep, relief. We are a long-suffering people. Many of us are weary with a long search, a long struggle, going back not only in our own lifetime, but a long, painful heritage. Please see the histories of our people that are in a building called Teacher's Resource Center. Many of us are now dead. Each moment, another passes over to peace. We are begging only for some understanding. It will take more than small minds, reporters' minds, to fathom these events. Something must come of this. There is quiet as we leave this world. The sky is gray. People file slowly and take this somewhat bitter drink. Many more must drink. We did not want it this way. All was going well as Ryan completed his first day here. Then a man tried to attack him unsuccessfully at the same time. Several set out into the jungle wanting to overtake Ryan, his aide, and others who left with him. They did, and several were killed. When we heard this, we had no choice. We would be taken. We have to go as one. We want to live as people's temple or end it. We have chosen. It is finished. Hugging and kissing and tears and silence and joy in a long line. A tiny kitten sits next to me, watching. A dog barks. The birds gather on the telephone wires. Let all the story of this people's temple be told. Let all the books be opened. This sight, oh, terrible victory. If nobody understands, it matters not. I am ready to die now. Darkness settles over Jonestown on its last day on earth. This was not a peaceful death. Whatever that letter says, the recordings, the death tapes from the day that Jonestown died, were not quiet and they were not peaceful. Dick Trump spins a very peaceful and and quiet picture, but there were screams, there was yelling, and there were cries, and people were dying, all because of Jim Jones. James Warren Jones, Jones was born an only child in Crete, Indiana on May 13, 1931. And his family moved to Lynn, Indiana in 1934. It was a, basically the same kind of small town existence. You know, you're thinking in the 19, 1930s, 1940s, you know, it's, it's very small town and a very religious atmosphere. But his family was very poor. His father, James Thurman Jones, was a drunk, unemployed World War I veteran who suffered from the after effects of mustard gas. And his mother, Lynetta, who was 16 years younger than her husband, worked at a factory to support the family. She was also really, really coarse, and she would drink and smoke, and she was a union member. So this is kind of not exactly what a normal wife would be like in 1930s Indiana. Lynetta basically wore the pants in the family. I mean, she was the one earning the money. She was in charge. She, you know, uh, here, uh, James Thurman Jones was staying home with the kid, and she was going to work. So, you know, she was basically in charge. Now, the family did not go to church, but there was a neighbor woman by the name of Myrtle Kennedy, and she decided that she was going to take Jim with her to her Nazarene, Nazarene church, and he started to become fascinated with it, just really religion in general. 
uh, he was obsessed with it and, and with death. And he would start to conduct funerals for animals that had died, including ones that it turned out later he had killed himself. Kids had actually, that he played with, had actually seen him killing animals and then, you know, conducting funerals for them, which obviously is kind of creepy. Um, he had also done other things too. He was, he was kind of a strange kid anyway. Um, his dad had given him a BB gun and he ended up shooting a friend in the stomach with it. And then later, years later, he actually fired on the same friend with a real gun. So he, you know, this is a friend of his that he's, that he's doing this with. So, I mean, you know, if that's his friends, imagine, you know, how he would have treated people he didn't like. He actually started going to a Pentecostal church near uh, Lynn, Indiana, called the Gospel Tab Tabernacle Church, where the people who went there, they, they took him in. They saw that he was interested, and they decided to sort of mentor him. Here he is alone, this kid who's not going to church with his family. And the minister started teaching him. Uh, and of course, this is a this is a Pentecostal church, so you're talking about you know um, you know loud and boisterous and speaking in tongues and and dancing in the aisles and and that sort of thing, you know that kind of energy, very energetic church. Um, but he began to have nightmares of snakes and he had insomnia. Um, so his mother kind of put her foot down and she said, you know, you're just you're not going to that church anymore. But his fascination with religion didn't end. He just he kept it up. And in high school. You know, when other kids are going out with their friends and they're going on dates and they're going drinking, he's putting on a robe and going to the main street in Lynn to preach. And at the time, you know, you know how it is when you're a teenager, you're not, you, you know, you're sort of fumbling with things that you're learning about and you're not really, um, you know, you're not really being very deft with any of it. Um, he was going to this main street to preach and he would be telling everybody that they're going to hell. Um he's, you know, kind of being loud and boisterous and just, just, just yelling at people basically on the street. At a certain point, he began to work part-time at Reed Memorial Hospital in Richmond, Indiana. He was making about $30 a week and he would um, preach in Richmond as well in these poor black neighborhoods. And he found that if he was speaking about racial equality, um, he would, uh, he would he would get more of a, uh, an audience. So he sort of played along with that, and he just kind of spoke up on that. And he did tell um, in one recording how he brought the only black man in town home to um, where his father lived. I think at that point, his father, I, I imagine, would have been um, separated from his mother. They, they separated at some point. And his father told him the man could not come in, so Jones left, and he didn't come back. Jones uh, found acceptance and understanding in the Pentecostal church. He, he really connected with that as an adult, and he would preach there. About the same time, he started um, dating Marceline Baldwin in 1949 when he was 18 and she was 22. And he would end up marrying Marceline. Now, they met at Reed Memorial before he had even left high school. She was still in nursing school, and he was he, he hadn't even graduated yet. 
uh, when they did marry, it was a double ceremony. Um, her younger sister, Eloise, was marrying a man named Dale Klingman, and so the two of them got married, and, and, and Jones married uh, Marceline as well. Uh, he and Marceline would actually go on uh, later down the line to have several children. Um, they had one natural child, Stephen Gandhi Jones, who was born in 1959. And they also adopted a lot of children. Um, they adopted, uh, first they adopted, um, well, not first, but he was one of the, the, the more, um, I don't want to say more important children. That sounds bad. But um, James Warren Jones Jr., uh, he was after African-American child, and he was adopted in 1960. Uh, he was the first black child adopted by a white family in the state of Indiana. Supposedly, uh, he, t he kind of tells a story in one of the documentaries that I watched that he was crying, and Marceline picked him up, and he stopped, and that was when they decided to adopt him. But, of course, you know, you're talking about small-town America in the, in the 60s. Um, it didn't really go over very well. You know, Marceline was once holding his hand while walking down the street and a passerby spat on him. So um, at the same time, you know, you're talking about the 50s and 60s and Korea's um, uh, kind of uh, in, the, in the early 50s, and mid 50s. Um, uh, Korea was a big thing, and and Jim uh, Jim Jones was was preaching to his his uh, congregants and his followers at that time that you know to adopt Korean orphans to support them. Uh, so he and Marceline adopted Lou, Suzanne, and Stephanie, who were all of Korean descent. Stephanie Jones actually died in a car accident in 1959. She was only five years old. And after that, the family was forced to bury her in a segregated cemetery. So, you know, racism is, is really um, impacting their lives already. Suzanne, um, like I said, Suzanne, there were Suzanne and Lou who were the um, their Korean uh, adopted Korean children. And they would later adopt Agnes Jones, who was part Native American, and she, and she was eleven when she was adopted, so she was she was um, an older child. Uh, they adopted Tim, who was um, uh, adopted from a, a child uh, a, a woman who was a member of People's Temple later down on the line. So they were you know they were taking in these children. Um, a lot of different children, and there were other children that would um, come into play later on down the line, uh, but we'll get to that. Um, Jim Jones founded a Community Unity Church in a racially diverse area of Indianapolis in 1954. Uh, People's Temple, which was renamed from Wings of Deliverance, was opened in Indianapolis in 1956 and officially became part of the Disciples of Christ denomination in 1960. There was, um, you know, here he is, you know, and he's he's putting out this kind of racially diverse um, church in a racially diverse area, and 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 he did get a lot of, of flack for that, um, but he was actually interested in um, um, a this famous preacher named Father Divine. Father Divine was an African American reverend and a founder of the International Peace Mission Movement. And he also kind of um, was sort of a cult leader in his own way. Um, he did claim to be God, and he insisted on being called Father. And on his wife, he did have, um, uh, he was married twice. Uh, his wife would be, be called Mother Divine. Um, his first marriage was to a follower named Panina, who was several decades older than him. And his second marriage was to a white Canadian woman named Edna Rose, who was only 21. 
in both cases, he claimed the marriage were not marriages weren't consummated based on his belief in abstinence. Uh, but you know, they were both called um, Mother Divine, and and Jones based a lot of his ideas on Father Divine. You know, being called Father and Mother, and 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 also his habit of making audio recordings of his sermons to be played later. And this will come. In, this is also going to come into play. In um, later on in 1972, Jones would go so far as to try and take over the last of Father Divine's followers. Uh, Father Divine had passed away in 1965, and so the the church was kind of um, winding down. And Edna Rose, Mother Divine, was left behind to fight him off. Uh, his attempted takeover was a complete failure. Um, but at that time, he really didn't need to take them over, um, as we'll see. He, like I said, he did get a lot of criticism for his integrationist uh, views. Um, he was really um, using the church, using People's Temple, to try and integrate a lot of different locations throughout Indianapolis. Um, he would he would um, take temple members to different uh, businesses through in town, restaurants and and shopping centers, that sort of thing, and and take these these black congregants to these different places and try to integrate them. Um, he would send temple members to other churches to take seats in the pews, and you know to try and and anger them. So they would go to the you know he'd send these black parishioners to these all-white churches and they would do things like open the window on a cold day right next to their pews so they had to sit next to this cold window and, and that kind of thing and there and like i said there was a lot of of um uh splashback in terms of um things like a swastika was put on the temple um there was a stick of dynamite that was left in a coal pile at the church and a dead cat was thrown at his out house uh, there, there were a lot of different incidents like this um Although in retrospect, a lot of people suspect that he he may have son, done some of them himself to you know to kind of look a little um, look a little better, uh, look a little more like his his message was getting to people. In 1961, uh, Mayor Charles Boswell named Jones to the head of the city's Human Rights Commission, and um, uh, that same year, he was accidentally admitted to the black ward of a hospital after a collapse, uh, but he refused to be moved when the mistake was discovered. And he actually started helping to make beds and empty bedpans. Um, you know, it was one of those things that, um, you know, really kind of made him look very good, look very good uh, to um, other people who really weren't um, uh, supportive of segregation and racism and that sort of thing. Now, all this time he's, he's, you know, he's running People's Temple and he's, um, you know, building this congregation. But in 1962, he and his family moved to Brazil for a little bit to, um, uh, to, you know, it's kind of what he was doing down there is kind of vague. Um, it really seems like, you know, depending on who you listen to or, or, you know, what story you hear or what evidence there is, you know, he could be doing, um, you know, he could have been trying to expand the church. He just had gotten a job. Um, he was focused on, um, he was kind of interested in, in nuclear, um, attacks and, and finding a place that was safe from nuclear attacks. So he was staying in a city that was sort of um, 
known for um it was sort of had sort of been talked about in articles as being a safe place to be in in the um event of a, of a nuclear holocaust and um you know and there's other stories too that maybe he was worth the cia and maybe he was with um you know working as as a as a um as a gigolo um you know there's so many things that that um he may have been doing but what he was really doing is is not really very well known um you know you can't really and none of the evidence that I was able to find was really solid um, in terms of what he was doing in Brazil. Um, but suffice it to say, while he was gone, the people's temple faltered somewhat. Um, you know, he re- he wasn't there to lead them. He wasn't there to take control. And so they really didn't have the support that they could have had. And so they started to wind down. But he came back um, uh, um, in... 1963 or 1965, depending on, on, um, you know, for good, um, depending on what source you, you use. Um, and then, uh, the people's temple built up once again, uh, Indianapolis, uh, went right back to, to pressuring Jones, given his acceptance of his black churchgoers. Um, like I said, he was sending his members of his church to other churches to, um, witness to integration as he was calling it to go to these other churches and, and try to, um, uh, integrate them whether they liked it or not but there was a lot of pushback and like I said he was very focused on stories of, of nuclear attack and he ha- and he said he was having um, visions and prophecies of of, of um, nuclear holocaust so after careful consideration he decided to move his church to Ukiah California there was this Esquire article and it had rated it as one of the best places in the world to go to survive a nuclear attack. So he, his family, and 80 members of his congregation moved in 1965 in about 12 to 15 cars across the country. So it was about, it was about half. It was 50-50 black and white members. It was a, it was a very integrated um, congregation. They moved to Redwood Valley which uh you know everybody who went there described it it was it was beautiful it was rural it was it was it was you know farms and and vineyards and it's just a really beautiful place to live um and when jones would talk about the temple and he would talk about what they stood for he would quote jesus saying sell all things and have all things in common and that was what they would push for they would um you know, they would kind of pull their money and pull their work and pull their labor and, and, and support each other. Jones bought up Greyhound buses. And what the church would do is that they would tour across the country. They would um, be going across the country, spreading these socialist ideas and talking about, you know, um, racial equality and, and socialism and, 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 um, supporting your fellow man and 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 they were saying this at a time when you know you have all the you know you have race riots and you have vietnam and you have all this strife and here comes this this preacher who comes along and he's got this this racially integrated uh, um uh, group of people who are following him and he's saying you know take care of one another and 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 uh support your fellow man and, get, and you know there should be no rich or poor you know we'll, we'll support each other and 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 it, it's really appealing message you know at the best of times at a time like that where there's all this strife going on um, a lot of people were really interested in it you had a lot of of people who either um you, you had guys who had 
tried to go to Vietnam and couldn't or who had been to Vietnam and had, you know, had been broken by it. And here was this guy who uh, was coming along, giving support and being very positive and, and, and people were drawn to that. He was a very charismatic man. So People's Temple grew from about 80 people to thousands over the span of about five years. You know, like I said, they were going across the country and touring with these Greyhound buses, and they would come back with members who, um, you know, there's one uh, guy in a in a in a documentary I saw who said that he he went to three nights of Jones preaching, and on the third night he got on the bus. You know, it's it was that kind of a time where you could drop everything and say, okay, I'm getting on the bus and going with People's Temple back to California. So in, in 1972, People's Temple purchased church buildings in L.A. and in San Francisco. The thing about People's Temple is that it was very energetic, and it, and it felt like an old-time religious service in a black church. Uh, that was what a lot of people would say. They'd be walking along the street, and you'd, you know, and, and you'd be drawn to um, you know, the singing and, and, and the people outside who were really um, kind, and, and they were trying to help you. And, and the whole thing about the church was that... Uh, he would come out, Jones would come out and he would preach, you know, social justice and racial equality and helping the poor and the elderly, all these things that, you know, really good things that it's really hard not to, you know, to, 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 um, you know, find any fault with at all. Um, he was doing things like, um, with the church, like establishing senior citizen homes and uh, you know, homes for the mentally ill and disabled. And what would happen is, is, you know, with these is, you know, for example, with the senior citizen homes, the elderly would sell all their belongings. They would sign over their social security payments and sign these life care contracts. And the community would care for them. The community would come together and take care of these elderly people. And basically, I mean, you know, doctors, dentists, clothes, food were taken care of as part of membership in the temple. You know, if you needed clothes, if you needed to go to the dentist, you just went. Um, free childcare was provided for working temple members. And members who kind of quote unquote went communal, um, what you would do is you would, you would go, you'd get a job, you'd sign over your paychecks and you would, you'd get like minimal room and board and a small allowance. But of course that, that paycheck is going out and it's, it's, it, you know, it's paying for helping to take care of the poor and, and to, um, support racial equality and do all these really good things. So, so, you know, you may not have a lot, but when you're seeing what the temple is doing, it makes it look like you're you're supporting a good cause. And that's what's, you know, that's what's drawing new members in. Um, because of that, because so many people were being drawn to the temple, there were, there were a multitude of jobs that needed to be done. And members started to find themselves working these absurd amount of, of hours without sleep to do all of this, you know, just to do everything that they had to do. Um, one member uh, mentioned in a, in a documentary that the longest she was awake without sleep or coffee was six straight days. Um, when they were, um, Laura Johnston Cole was describing her experience, you know, her typical experience of um, her work day or her work weekend or something like that. It just, it just keeps going. There's no sleep. And it's, it's a day after day thing. It's, it's just, it's so impossible to imagine doing this much work um, without 
you know, without sleep, without um, time to yourself, without getting to see your wife or to, without getting to see your husband or, you know, you're doing so much stuff that, you know, um, it's, it's uncomfortable, it's tiresome, but at the same time, you know, again, you're seeing this as doing a good cause and that's the selling point. Wow. But with all of this, with all of this talk of racial equality, there was one big thing. The congregation was mostly black, but Jones, Jones's inner circle was almost completely white. Um, there was uh, something called the Planning Commission, which was about about um, 100 members of, of the temple were on the Planning Commission. And Jones had the final say on these decisions. But like, like I said, a lot of these people were, were white. Um, so, it, you know, they would talk about racial equality, but you really weren't seeing that in, in the, in the leadership. And that wasn't, you know, the only problem that started to arise. There were other things. Um, Jones was doing these, these faith healings in meetings and at services. He was, he was telling people that he had cured their cancer. He was telling people that he had, um, helped, um, with, you know, um, their eyesight, you know, that sort of thing. Um, there was a, a anecdote that was, um, that I saw in, in one, uh, documentary where there was this little old lady in a wheelchair and she was told that she would be healed. And so she got up and she, she took this slow, shaky step and she said, Oh, I can feel it. And then she started moving forward, um, taking step after step after step until she was walking faster and faster and, and, and she was running. And the congregation was really thrilled and excited. And Neva Sly, who was one of the, uh, who was one of the um, temple members who later defected, said that she found out later on that that old, that old lady was one of the secretaries just pretending to need a wheelchair. So this is the, the kind of thing that was going on behind the scenes. Um, there were other things that were going on. Um, Jones started to talk to the congregation about the Bible and started to talk down the Bible. You know, he was saying things like, you know, you read this book and it, and it tells you that, 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 um, that, that slavery is okay. And other problems also began to rise at this time. Um, there were things like healings. Jones was doing these, these faith healings in meetings and at services. He, he would tell people that he was curing their cancer, that he was fixing their leg, that he was fixing their eyes. Uh, he was really kind of making it seem like he had these paranormal powers. And there were um, a lot of these different kind of showy things that he was doing to make himself look more powerful. Neva Sly, one of the temple members who ultimately would, would defect from the church, she told an anecdote about this little old lady who was in a wheelchair at one of the services. And Jones told her that she would be healed. So she got up and she started taking this sort of slow, shaky step. And then she said, I can feel it. And she starts moving forward. And she's taking these steps forward and going faster and faster until she's running. And she's moving so fast. I mean, the congregation is just amazed and thrilled and excited. And they're cheering and they're all happy. But Neva Sly said later on that she, she found out that the old lady was one of the secretaries just pretending to need a wheelchair. Um... So, you know, obviously this is just for show and it's, you know, but it's working. People are starting to believe that he can heal them. 
there are other things that he was doing. Uh, he started to tell the congregation that the Bible has no power, that the that people are using the Bible and have used the Bible for centuries to excuse things like slavery, which when you have a church which has such a high, um, uh, it has a high, such a high um, black congregation, you know, high percentage of black congregation, you know, he's kind of playing into, um, you know, he's kind of playing into, um, you know, kind of the, 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 problem with the one of the problems with the Bible is saying, you know, saying, you know, this is what people were using to, you know, excuse slavery. And he's saying, you know, it really, it's just a book. It has no power. And at one time he threw it across the church and he was like, you know, was I struck down? And he's kind of, you know, implying, you know, there's no power to this book. You know, it's, it, you know, it's not the same power that, you know, you don't have to give it the same power that a lot of people give it. Um, later on, he'd actually um, kind of make it against the rules to even have a Bible. So, um, uh, there's, there's other references to a Bible, which again, I'll get to. Um, but then there was sex. Uh, Jones started to tell people that every uh, temple members, that everyone was a homosexual except for him. Um, he said that sexual relationships were selfish and took away from helping others. But at the same time, he was having sex with both male and female members of the church, but almost exclusively white ones. Um, in December of 1973, he was actually arrested in an L.A. theater for homosexual activity, but the charges were soon dropped and the records were dismissed and, and sort of hidden. Um, uh, Jim Carter, who uh, was one of the... Uh, one of the people, um, Tim Carter, excuse me, was one of the people, uh, one of the temple members claims that he, he'd gone back, uh, back, in, you know, to a back room or to an office or something like that. And, and Jim Jones came up to him and, and said, hi. And, and he, um, kind of clapped him on the back and said, um, I'll fuck you in the ass if you want. So, uh, you know, it, it basically, you know, he said something like, you know, if that's something you want, I could do that, which kind of took, Tim Carter off guard. He was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> um, another temple member, Hugh Fortson, said that in one gathering, um, the men started comparing notes, and many of them had had anal sex with Jones. Um, he hadn't, as he jokingly said. He said, "He said, I'm not getting anything from my wife. Why would I be getting anything from? I don't have time to have sex with her. Why would I be having sex with with Jim Jones?" Um, but it was it, it was kind of. Uh, an open secret that he was basically having sex with um, a lot of people in the temple. Um, one uh, woman, Rebecca Moore, who was a sister of actually two temple members, Ann Moore and, and Carolyn Leighton Moore. Uh, Carolyn would later have a, a child with Jones named Chemo. But um, uh, Rebecca Moore said that her and her parents went to go see her sister at um, one of her sisters at one point, And, she left the room and when she came back, everybody was crying. And, um, apparently Jim Jones had told her family that his sis her sister was carrying on an affair with him because his wife couldn't relate to him as a wife anymore. Those were the words. And, and the, and I mean, you know, when you hear it, as she said, when you hear it now, it seems, you know, it seems ridiculous, but back then it just, it seemed plausible. He had this way of talking you into going, Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, um, so the, the, this, the sexual things that were going on at the time, 
um, co- you know, involve not only, you know, just, um, uh, not only, you know, affairs and that sort of thing, but also, you know, there was some implications of, of, of possible sexual assaults and, and rapes, uh, that were going on, but, uh, there was nothing really, um, you know, he was, obviously he wasn't taken to jail or anything. Otherwise we would have heard of that. Um, but another thing that, uh, came up, uh, was he began to talk about, um, uh, suicide. Uh, there was this new year's Eve party. There were about 20, 120 temple members there. And at one point, Jim Jones stands up and announced the punch has been poisoned. Everyone freaked out. Understandably so. Um, and after they had freaked out for a little while, um, he admitted that he had lied and that he was testing their loyalty to the cause. He'd often, he'd often run these suicide drills to test their loyalty to die for the cause. And it became sort of a thing where he would try to see who was willing to do it. Um, who was going to hesitate, who was going to turn them down and kind of use that to his advantage later on. He started using the term revolutionary suicide. Revolutionary suicide was a, toy, a term coined by Huey Newton, who's the leader of the, the Black Panther Party. Um, he wasn't using it the same way that, that Huey Newton used it, though. When Huey Newton used that phrase, what he was describing was, um, if you are going out there and you are fighting for, you know, racial equality or fighting against bigotry or fighting against, you know, any of these sorts of things, fighting against poverty, whatever, um, that you have to go into that understanding that you may be shot down or you may be, um, you know, you may um, be taken by the wayside while you're in the process of doing that. And, you know, if you're waving a banner at the same time, you know, that banner may drop, but there are going to be other protesters who will pick up your banner and carry it until the fight is won. That's revolutionary suicide is going into something knowing that um, the establishment, the people who are you're fighting against may go after you, but this is for a good cause. Um, Jones used it another way. Um, he basically used it as a rhetorical statement to get what he wanted. Um, it was basically a threat. If you know, it kind of, you know, when you look at a lot of the times that he mentions it now, um, it does kind of read like a teenager throwing a tantrum, except with mentions of suicide, you know, if I don't get this, or if you do this, I'm going to kill myself. And instead of him just saying, I'm going to kill myself, it was the entire temple is going to kill themselves. So it was really, um, it was really uh, just just an appalling kind of perversion of the way that Huey Newton has had coined it. In 1974, the temple moves to San Francisco uh, to a building on 1859 Geary. People's Temple was really, um, really a part of uh, trying to um, get involved in San Francisco. They would go to protests. They would be on time. Um, they would... Uh, they were they were basically um, made for political rallies. Um, you could call them up and say, "Well, we need support for this," and they would show up. There would be like a hundred of them, and they would show up. They would have banners, and they would have posters, and they would chant in time, and they would, you know, they people who you know people in the government and and people with causes who needed support liked to get their backing because they were they had a good reputation for this sort of thing. Um, because of their interaction in um, in government and in um, 
you know, in pushing for um, uh, these sorts of causes. Jim Jones met a lot of different people who were involved in um, local states, all different kinds of, of, of um, uh, government positions. He met Walter Mondale. He went. He met Rosalind Carter in 1976 as part of that year's presidential campaign. Um, you almost feel bad for Rosalind Carter. There's a picture of her with Jim Jones, and, and there's a picture of her with John Wayne Casey. It's you know she, she didn't have a lot of luck with meeting um, local uh, um, uh, local political. Uh, political uh figures but um um he did he played on things that were actually happening in the news like buggings assassinations um you know riots that sort of thing to kind of increase paranoia among temple members and attachment to the church you know he it was really easy to to kind of point and say well there's you know there's a protest at the you know uh republican national committee convention and there's this and there's that and there's all kinds of different things that are happening and um you know, it's really easy to uh, kind of say, well, we might be getting bugged when Watergate is happening, that sort of thing. Um, at the same time, though, um, Jim Jones starts using drugs, starts taking drugs, supposedly at the time for his kidneys. Um, and that, uh, understandably, is probably not helping with his own paranoia. Uh, the temple uh, burned down at one point, uh, caught a fire, and that really played into the church's paranoia as well. You know, somebody is out to get us. But they continued onward with um, assisting, with uh, putting people in positions of power who could help them out, um, you know, who could uh, get them more. Um, the People's Temple at one point helped support George Moscone for mayor. If that name sounds familiar, um, it's because um, he would later um, be assassinated with, along with Harvey Milk. Uh, but uh, uh, the temple gained, you know, they gained his support. They gained the support of former San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. And they gained Harvey Milk's support, among others. Uh, because they were, you know, they, they did, you know, come out and they worked hard. And they um, uh, they actually managed to help George Moscone win by only about 4,000 votes, I think it was. So they were really integral to him being in power and that sort of gave them a lot to um you know a lot of influence jim jones ended up being appointed chairman of the city housing authority and because of that the you know as somebody put it in one of the documentaries i watched it, it it made the meetings really interesting because what would happen is you know they would send members of the temple down to uh, on buses to these meetings and so they would stand when he came in they would clap when he spoke or if he left the room you know those sorts of things and uh, you know uh, upon re you know hearing that i just kind of you know uh, me personally i was reminded of charles manson and uh, the way that his uh, followers behaved uh, at their trial that was what immediately came to mind which is not a good thing at all uh, behind behind the scenes of the church though there's still a lot of really really bad uncomfortable things going on um members were being slapped and spanked in meetings um you know you know kids um adults all sorts of people were getting um were getting pushed around were getting um basically assaulted um they were being pushed to stand up and share who they had had sex with um 
uh, and Jones would kind of draw on the crowd. He would say, you know, he'd ask people, what do you think we ought to do with them? And this sort of, you know, it doesn't make him the bad guy. Suddenly, you know, it's that person over there who suggested, well, let's, you know, let's hit them. Um, you know, it kind of, um, he would kind of pass the buck in terms of, of, uh, in terms of, uh, kind of, you know, blame, I guess you could say. Um, one member, Stanley Clayton, told that one night he had to fight five guys while he was just exhausted. Um, and Nevis Sly, who I mentioned before, um, at one point she was actually her, um, and she had serious welts, which her coworkers at her day job saw. Um, they did persuade her to leave, um, but at the time she couldn't say goodbye to her um, son and husband because people were turning each other in. And it would turn out that might have been a good idea considering um, what her husband would do later on. At one planning meeting, uh, it, two women were fighting over Jim Jones, and, and Jones finally just ordered one of them to strip, uh, at which point um, people began to comment on her body. And of course she was just absolutely mortified. And he just kind of sat there, supposedly, according to witnesses, with this smile on his face. And at the time, I mean, he, he had this habit, if you see him in a lot of pictures, he had this habit of, of wearing sunglasses, even indoors. And so he's just sitting there with his sunglasses on, just watching her with this weird little smile on his face, according to witnesses. And 19, in, in, actually, in July of 1976, um, there, was, there was one beating that happened. Um, Peter Wotherspoon was, uh, Witherspoon was severely beaten at a planning commission meeting, and that encouraged several more members to defect. You know, it kind of, it was so bad that a couple of people just said, I'm done. And they, they defected and people were, who were starting to defect, um, it, it, you know, Jones almost took it personally. It seems he really, um, uh, you know, he kind of made it seem like if you defected, you were a traitor and you were, um, you know, it wasn't just, well, they left, you know, good on them, have a nice life. It was, you know, they were traitors and they were, um, they were going to tell the government on us and blah, you know, that kind of thing. He was really kind of building up the paranoia every time somebody like this left, which is how you end up with somebody getting severely beaten at a planning commission meeting. But there were other things that were coming up that they had to look forward to. Um, in winter of 1974, uh, land began to be cleared away in the northwest of Guyana to develop the People's Temple Agricultural Project. Guyana is this little country in the north of South America, and it is a very multicultural country. There are a lot of different races who live there, and it's the only country in South America whose official language is English. So it's very appealing to a group like the People's Temple who are looking for a place with a lot of different, um, uh, a, a, different a lot of um, different races making it up and you don't really want to have to learn another language. Um, and in December of 1975, uh, 90, 90 temple members flew down to Guyana to work on Jonestown to start building uh, these different things. Uh, they started, it started as just a footpath in the woods. It was about 150 miles from Georgetown near the border with Venezuela. And, and part of the reason they did put them on the border with Venezuela is to, um, because Guyana at the time, Guyana at the time was, was having some sort of, uh, kind of a strife with Venezuela. And so they decided that, you know, putting this big group of Americans on the border would keep Venezuela from trying to invade and attack, 
you know, so that they wouldn't, you know, they were kind of putting them there as a buffer. Um, in February of 1976, People's Temple signed a lease with the government of Guyana to cultivate and beneficially occupy at least one-fifth of over 3,800 acres of land. Uh, so you'd have all these, these, these temple members who were going down there. They were slashing and burning some of the jungle so that they would have um, room to, to build stuff, um, to build all these different buildings that they would need, um, to set up all the different um, gardens that they would have to make to uh, have their food. And he starts releasing film footage of the building of Jonestown. He would go around with a camera and this little microphone, one of those old-fashioned um, kind of cameras, and, and he he would get these positive interviews with members helping to build it, um, you know, saying, well, it's wonderful down here and, and um, you know, we're um, supported by Father's love and, and we, we really can't wait to build this utopia. And so... You know he's got all these. He's got it looking really great. He's showing people around. He's showing, well, this is where the, the we you know we have our pigs here, and this is where we're making these sauces that we're selling for thirty dollars a day. We're gonna build it up and you know sell more. And um, you know in in Georgetown and in Port Kaituma, which was really close to uh, to um, the to Jonestown, and and um, at one point in these videos, which is really kind of creepy, he opens. He's showing um, all these different. Um, supplies that they have and he opens this big trunk and there's just these boxes and he says oh and we have Kool-Aid they're actually Flavor-Aid which you know it's not really Kool-Aid so the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid which has kind of come into um, popularity is not exactly right but um, um, not to Neil deGrasse Tyson explain that but um, not to be the Neil deGrasse Tyson on that particular fact but you know it's this really unsettling moment where he uh, he lifts it open and you just see that 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 um, grape drink and you know what it's going to be used for about the time that all of this is going on and they're planning this move to Guyana the IRS begins to investigate the people's temple and their business related income a lot of it is very questionable you know they're taking um, uh, you know they're taking people's property they're reselling it to make money for the for the temple they're they're taking people's social security money this sort of thing um, and and Jane and Jim Jones you know for very good reason, did not want their tax, tax exempt status taken away. Uh, you know, they're a religion. It's America. They have the right to not um, to be tax exempt. So, um, if they had to start paying taxes, they might have to explain where some of their income was coming from, which is um, not a good thing, considering that a lot of their their income was, you know, questionable and and uh, you know, um, a lot of juggling of funds and that sort of thing. Um, but there were other problems as well. Uh, there were a, a group of defectors. They were calling themselves, um, they were called the, the Concerned Relatives. Um, and they were led by Tim and Grace um, Stone. They spoke with Marshall Kilduff and Phil Tracy of New West Magazine for an article on temp uh, People's Temple. Grace and Tim Stone, they were previously high-ranking members of the church. They had a son, John Victor Stone. And about a week after they had him, Tim signed paperwork stating that Jim Jones was John Victor's biological father. 
not, you know, about a, a while after that, uh, Grace defected from the, the church and she, she would become an uh, apostate, which is someone who was a public opponent of the church. And then she began to fight for custody of her son. Uh, not long after that, uh, Tim also left and he founded the Concerned Relatives Group in 1977 to push the government and media to look into People's Temple. The Concerned Relatives alleged that Jones ran Jonestown, uh, which, you know, we're going to talk about like a concentration camp of sorts. And so, um, and that those there, um, had been brainwashed and were unable to leave. We'll get into that a little more. Um, the concerned relatives included former temple members like Deborah Layton and Yolanda Crawford, who had signed affidavits of what happened while they were there. Um, it, I was kind of reminded, um, of the, um, the report on 9-11 that, that's, uh, you know, that's, I think it was Condoleezza Riser. Well, one of the, the, the higher ranking, um, Bush administration, um, uh, members said that they had really read and it was sort of titled like, you know, bin Laden plans to strike America or Al Qaeda to strike, um, plans to, um, attack, you know, America. That was the title of it. And you kind of, you kind of like, you've never, you didn't bother to read it or you didn't bother to, to understand what was in it or, you know, that sort of thing when the title is basically describing what happened, you know, what it was supposed to be about. Um, Deborah Layton's affidavit was something like, um, uh, affidavit saying that Jonestown, uh, members of Jonestown planned to commit mass suicide or something. It was something like that. It was very incendiary and it was, um, you know, anybody who read it, you know, in retrospect would kind of, shake their head. Um, Deborah Layton was actually a member of the church who was kind of a financial secretary and she had been pressured into having sex with Jones a couple of times. Um, she'd actually been raped in one of the buses. Uh, he kind of told her to meet him in, he had sort of a private space in the back with, um, and he had her go back there and he, he did rape her there. Um, so she had a brother, Larry, who was also a member of the church and kind of drew her in in the first place. And he'll become important later. We'll get to Larry. Um, the Stones fight for John Victor, custody of John Victor, um, was very important to uh, Jim Jones. Jim Jones had kind of taken John Victor as a... Um, as if the face of Jonestown, or at least, you know, as the face of the temple and later on as the face of Jonestown. And by the time they would get to Guyana and start in on this, um, this custody battle, battle, one Guyanese judge would actually have to excuse himself from the custody fight because people were calling his office. People with American accents were calling his office and making these violent threats. So he excused himself from this fight. He was, he's like, I'm out. Um, at one point, after you know, during all of this, when they're in Guyana, Jones had Deborah Layton contact a Guyanese official when they were ordered to return John Victor Stone with the message, unless the government of Guyana takes immediate steps to stall the Guyanese court action regarding John Victor Stone's custody, the entire population of Jonestown will extinguish itself in a mass suicide at 5.30 p.m. that day. So like I said, they throw down that threat and they throw it down more than once. Before the New West article broke in August of 1977, Jim Jones uh, managed to get the publisher to read the article to him over the phone. 
a previous uh, article, uh, an eight-part article written by Lester Kinsolving and published in the San Francisco Examiner in 1972, was stopped after four articles were submitted. But this article wasn't about to be stopped. The editor put her foot down and said, no, we're, we're going to publish this. As she's reading it, um, he quickly be begins to realize there's a lot of damning information in this article, people talking about beatings and... and, and um, the sexual, you know, I want to say escapades, but, you know, the sexual issues that were going on and, and um, uh, you know, other things that were that were happening behind the scenes. And at that point, he, according to other people who were at that, that meeting, he turned and he mouthed to them, we're leaving tonight. Uh, they had already um, been moving down to Jonestown since May. Members had been, started being sent down there. But the push to move the rest down to Jonestown became urgent at this point. And there were people who were leaving six hours before this article was going to come out. They basically, there was basically this huge push, and they, they went down to Guyana. There was actually one man named Fred Lewis who came home and found that his wife had taken his seven children and their possessions and left for Guyana. These people who were leaving were also taking money with them. Um, all members were being were going with five thousand dollars in cash on them, which was the legal limit. That was as much as they could take with them individually. But they were also smuggling in more money by you know they would get the elderly, less suspicious looking um, people, and they would give them twenty thousand dollars to smuggle on them. So they could take this money down to, to Guyana. They, they transferred $65,000 in Social Security checks a month for members down to Guyana. So instead of um, staying in the country, these Social Security payments were going out to these, to these people in Guyana. Um, they also sold off church properties to the tune of $5 million. So they were basically banking money to um, prepare for this stay in Jonestown. And at the same time, they were also smuggling something else into Jonestown. Um, they said it was Bibles. Um, they would tell people it was Bibles that were coming in these big crates. What it actually was was guns. In 1977, when they were moving down to, to Jonestown, um, getting to Jonestown was, was pretty difficult. It was a very long trip. Um, you're talking a long plane ride from the U.S. to Tamari Airport in Georgetown. Uh, there was a very large house at 41 Lamaha Gardens in Georgetown, which was the uh, temple kind of kind of headquarters. I don't want to say headquarters, but you know, it was a very big building, and it was it was a place where they could um, where people could stay until they went to to uh, moved on to Jonestown. When uh, the uh, tugboat. Uh, it was a 72-foot tugboat named the Cujo, and it would take you the rest of the way, um, the next stage, I should say, to um, Tonestown. Uh, you would leave 41 Lamaha Gardens and get on the Cujo, and it would head into the Caribbean for a 32-hour trip. It would then follow the Kaituma River for eight hours, at which point the captain would confiscate, confiscate any outside correspondence for the clearing committee at Jonestown to review. 
there was this committee this committee would go through these letters and kind of make sure that, you know, any kind of documentation you had on you and just kind of make sure there wasn't anything incendiary, any kind of um, coded messages, anything like that. Um, when you were on this boat, and you would reach Port Kaituma. Uh, a flatbed truck would take you to Jonestown. Uh, this was a 45 minute ride away. Um, you're going down this road. It's full of holes. You're in a. You're basically on a flatbag truck, dump truck, whatever. Um, you're going down this road, and you would pass under a sign which said "Greetings, People's Temple Agricultural Project." And once you pulled down the road into Jonestown, it sort of divided itself around a, this kind of playground, which sat like an island in the middle of the road. Um, and then it would kind of, the road would rejoin and, and keep going into Jonestown. Um, at this point, you would probably go to the pavilion. The pavilion was the center of Jonestown life. Uh, the pavilion was a large, open-sided, rectangular meeting place with picnic tables and a tin roof. If you flew over in an airplane and you flew over um, Jonestown, that was probably the most noticeable thing, was this big pavilion. Um, a wooden walkway built onto the ground led from the road to the pavilion, which was probably a good thing because when it rained there, it got really muddy, which you can see in pictures. If you look at any picture of Jonestown, it's, it, the mud there was just, um, horrendous when it rained. Uh, to the right, as you walked toward the pavilion from the road, you're walking down this, this, this wooden walkway, um, to the, to the pavilion on the right is the radio room. And after that is these two large rectangular education tents. And they would have classes there in things like Russian because one of the one of the big things that that Jim Jones would tell these people is um that um you know worst case scenario will go to Russia. Um you know they would talk about communism and they would talk about um going to Russia. And so, you know, they have to learn Russian. And so they would, you know, have classes like that. They would have classes for the kids. They would have all kinds of different classes where you could learn different things. Um, the pavilion, you know, it's this big open air pavilion and it featured a sign which said, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Just past the pavilion and the education tents were the set of five dormitories. In a, it was kind of an information like the Olympic rings. You know, there were two closer to you as you approached. And then there were three that were farther away. A little past those was this long pathway veering off to the left, which led to guest housing, which was a ways from the, from the dorms. Um, however, if you, if you kept following the pathway that you were on, um, you would pass this basketball court. And then you would reach this spread of about 52 cottages for the temple members. There was a, a tower that stood over the car, the cottages and they were armed guards that were actually in this tower. So, um, you know, that's something you really want to see over, over your, your cottage is, is a tower with armed guards. If, if you had veered off to the right, when you entered Jonestown going around the playground rather to the left to go to, um, the pavilion, you would reach this banana and vegetable stand. And then after that, there was, uh, the kitchen and the bakeries just behind the banana and veg uh, vegetable stand was the laundry. And after the kitchens, there was the set of buildings that were kind of, um, they were in a square, 
uh, and they were sort of catty corner, so they were kind of like a diamond shape right next to the, the kitchen. And there were four there were four buildings, a doctor's office, an infirmary, a pharmacy, and a lab. Uh, and just uh, past these was a pathway which led to the West House. The West House was Jones's private residence. It was several hundred feet away from the rest of the camp. So he had his own personal um, kind of private area. There were other locations in the camp uh, that were um, available. Uh, there were wells and generators. There were um, storage buildings. Uh, there was a tool shop, a garage, a sawmill, a smokehouse, a soap factory, and the Cuffey Memorial Baby Nursery, which was Marceline Jones's pride and joy. It housed the 33 children born at Jonestown. There were actually 304 minors under the age of 18 who lived in Jonestown. And at, at first it was fun for people who arrived. Um, before uh, Jones got there, members would, would watch movies from, from Georgetown. Um, Stephen Jones talked about, um, he went down to Jonestown uh, early on and before his father came and, and he said that, you know, uh, before his father came, it was, it was, it was, it was an, it was a nice place to be. It was hard work, but his father wasn't there. And so it was a lot less stressful, but soon enough, uh, unease and paranoia began to set in once again because of Jones. Um, you know, he was, he was the only one who would speak out over the speaker system. And much like Father Define, he would record himself. So he could be talking on that speaker system all night long. You're trying to sleep and you're hearing his voice all over the speakers all night long. He would read out these news reports from the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. And he would also speak about the United States as falling apart due to racism and economic collapse. He kind of, I mean, the way that he talked about it, it sounded like it was just, um, you know, apocalypse waiting to happen any moment. Um, the movies were over. There were no more movies. Now it was so Soviet propaganda and documentaries on American social pro problems. The food situation was a problem. Um, when people had first arrived there, they were having, you know, chicken and, and rice and vegetables and all these different things. Um, but there was only so much food that was available. They had something like enough food to support about 300 people when all of a sudden there were a thousand people at Jonestown. And so instead of all of the food that they had had at the beginning, it quickly dwindled down to just rice, beans, and gravy and biscuits. And it was kind of watery gravy and, and the rice had weevils in it. It really wasn't the best food in the world. Um, they were selling a lot of their food outside of Jonestown when they could, could use it. They were selling, you know, chickens when they were, they could have used chickens and, you know, people were losing weight. Um, people were developing all sorts of deficiencies because they weren't getting enough food. And the only time they were really having meat and vegetables was when visitors would come to Jonestown just to make themselves look better. The members of People's Temple, once they got down to Jonestown, there was nowhere to go and no way to get there. You're out in the middle of the jungle. 
the road to Jonestown is six miles away from Port Kaituma. Port Kaituma has an airstrip, which is basically a long dirt road. And, um, you know, you have to get on a boat to get on the, you know, to go up the Kaituma River. I mean, it's really hard to get anywhere. Um, you know, there's no other contact with the outside world. So Jones is the way that you're getting filtered to the outside world. Not only that, um, you're, a lot of your personal stuff is taken away. When you arrived at Jonestown, there was a greeting committee, and they would go through your belongings, and they would take almost everything except for four t-shirts, four pairs of socks, a toothbrush, toothpaste, four pairs of underwear, and a bar of soap. Um, Jim Jones was actually allowed to pick through um, the confiscated items for his own use. But Jones, Jones was also starting to get more sick, and his voice be, became more slurred. If you listen to audio of him from that time, he says a lot of, um, you know, his, his, his voice drags, and he says, he lisps, he says, suicide instead of suicide. His tongue is very thick. Um, video of, of him from, from later on, from the time of the massacre, um, he's, he, you can see him talking to, um, you know, kind of a his, the camera is on him and he's talking to a group of people and, and, you know, just privately, and you can see him licking his lips and this is sort of a sign of, 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 um, drug addiction. Uh, he, he doesn't really look very well at all. He was on several drugs like phenobarbital at the time. And he would also go into these highs and lows emotionally. He was kind of moving from rages to calmness over, uh, you know, just moments. There was a, a temple member who was a teenage boy. His name was Tommy Bogue, Bogue. And he found these milkshakes in a fridge. And he drank some because, I mean, milkshakes, free milkshakes, take one. Um, but he was kind of loopy and drugged the next day, and he really didn't know what was going on. He told his mother, and she warned him, she said, don't do that again. Those are Jim Jones's drinks. Don't drink them. Uh, but she was wrong. They weren't for Jim Jones. They were for temple members. And the reason that they were for temple members was to sedate them if they were um, distraught or they were being troublemakers. Uh, they would give them these, these uh, uh, milkshakes, and it would drug them. Um, after the massacre, authorities uh, would start going through um, what was available in the stores and would later find enough psycho psychotropic drugs in the pharmacy after the massacre to sedate the entire community for two years. So there were a lot of drugs in Jonestown and a lot of sedation going on. Um, in October 1978, a month before the massacre, um, a physician uh, and longtime uh, Temple supporter, Carlton Goodlett, he visited Jonestown and he, and he saw Jones and he basically um, told them that um, Jones needed to go to a clinic in Venezuela for medical help, but you couldn't really get him to go at that point. There was no way of, of getting them there. Uh, Stephen Jones even says in an interview, you know, he said like he was just falling apart. Um, he... You know, obviously he's paranoid. He starts making other people paranoid. He starts convincing people to turn in their friends and relatives for wanting to leave. And and people who had shared fears with Jones in the past had those fears. Like, if you, if you said that you were afraid of snakes, he would um, uh, use them against you if you did wrong. And he would, he had, his son had a snake and he would, like, put them on people to kind of, you know, terrify them. Or, you know, he'd put you in a, in a, in a hole with a bunch of rats if you were afraid of rats and you had done something wrong. It was really this kind of thing. It was kind of torture. But there was also, I mean... 
you know, if, if you were thinking about leaving Jonestown, you couldn't really tell anyone because if you told someone you might be punished for it, you might end up on the uh, learning crew, which was basically, um, for punishment where you would, um, be doing backbreaking labor all day and you would just be under constant watch and there was no way you were going to get away now. As all this is happening, Jones is also committing adultery with both male and female members of the temple. Um, as I said, he did have a son, Chemo, with Carolyn Leighton Moore, who was one of the, um, who was one of the, um, uh, one of his closest supporters. Um, he and Marceline lived apart at Jonestown. And at, at one point, Marceline was actually seen um, outside of his quarters yelling, I've taken this for 14 years and I'm not going to take it any longer. He, um, he was seen by one man who was in one of the, um, uh, he was in the infirmary. Um, he saw, he actually saw Jim Jones go to a bed where a, a woman had been, you know, was kind of drugged and, and out of it. And he, he pulled the curtain around it. And the next thing you know, kind of the squeak of the bed as he, as he climbs on there. So, you know, there were some awful things that he was doing. Um, you know, he was having, you know, consensual and non-consensual sex with, with so many people at Jonestown. Um, one woman is quoted at a meeting Per um, Hyacinth Thrash was an elderly member, uh, an, an elderly temple member, Hyacinth Thrash. She said that she was at a meeting and, and one woman there said, you ain't been fucked until you've been fucked by Jim Jones. And she was supported by a man who said the same thing. So this is the kind of thing that's, that's going around, that's going on in Jonestown. If you weren't having sex with Jim Jones, um, you had to have your, any sort of romantic relationship that you wanted to have approved by the relationship committee. Um, if you snuck off with, um, uh, you know, if you snuck off with somebody and you decided to go to your, your, um, the place where you were living or, or, or to the tool shed, which was kind of, you know, it was kind of a popular place to go and, and have, um, sex with somebody. Um, you could be ratted out. You could be told on even by the person you had had sex with and placed on the learning crew. So, you know, having, you know, any sort of um, sexual or romantic relationship at Jonestown was a minefield of epic proportions. Um, there were also punishments that happened at Jonestown. Um, there was the box, which was a shipping crate that had been lowered into the ground. And the first person who was actually put into the box was Dana Truss. Dana was seven. It was dark in there. It was silent. You were left alone. And people were actually, children from, uh, were actually being paraded over to hear her inside crying and begging for water. And the principal of the school, um, who had brought them over there was just kind of, you know, showing them, this is what happens when you do wrong. You end up in the box. So she wasn't getting a lot of help. Um, at one point, there was this six-day siege that took place. Um, the residents were made to believe that they were under attack. And so for six days, they, they were being, you know, under the impression that um, people were going to come and they were going to be attacked. They were all going to be killed. The babies were going to be killed. All of this. It was staged by Jim Jones. 
It was, it was, a lot of things were staged by Jim Jones. Jim Jones, um, you know, here he is, he's, he's, he's staging these suicide drills. He's staging this six day siege. And part of it is because of, um, Grace and Tim Stone coming for John Victor Stone, you know, this custody fight. Um, the custody fight for, for John Victor Stone was seen as a linchpin in Jones's um, leadership at Jonestown because, because here he was and he had made, um, he'd kind of turned John Victor into the face of Jonestown. He, you know, he's this, he's this adorable little boy with dark hair and a, and a, and a, and a gorgeous smile, you know, very cute little boy. And he has been, you know, this is his, his, um, his sort of his his heir apparent you know here is this child who is adorable and listens to everything he says and and at this point you know he has his teenage sons and Stephen um in particular is um very um rebellious and had been um doing drugs before he got to to Jonestown um and uh you know doesn't really listen um and yeah but here's this boy who does listen who follows every word that he says so that is, you know, and it, it becomes this thing. If we lose John Victor, we may lose all of Jonestown. You know, it's kind of this feeling that um, he, John Victor Stone is is so important and they have to keep him. And if they lose him, that's it. Um, but like I said, that wasn't the only staged event at Jonestown. Um, Jonestown had a doctor. Um, his name was um, Lawrence Schutt. And he, he got in touch with an OBGYN in Maryland on a ham radio. Uh, he claimed that he had a woman in Jonestown in late labor with twins, and he needed assistance with the C-section. He thought they were both going to die. Um, the OBGYN assumed after the call had finished, he tried to talk him through it, but he assumed after this call was finished that he would receive bad news about the mother and the babies. Instead, he heard back from Schacht that all survived and they were well. It became a big thing. It became a big story. The Washington Star wrote a story on the incident, and the OBGYN was honored at the Guyanese Embassy in D.C. Turns out it was crap. Um, the Shaq had made the whole story up in an attempt to, um, you know, make them look good. Lawrence Shaq had, had been cleaned up by the temple and sent to medical school. He used to be a drug addict, and they sent him to medical school, but he was sent down to Jonestown before he completed his residency. Um, the C-section story was this attempt to cover for the fact that Schacht wasn't licensed to practice in Guyana. He was the only practicing doctor in Jonestown, and he would often consult with a group of medical professionals offering free advice over the ham radio. And because he sounded so naive and so uneducated, they assumed that he wasn't practicing. But he was. And there were a lot of times that um, he would be um, examining people, and he would be taking out medical books and going through them as he was examining them. That's how um, little experience he had. Uh, but at one point, he was more focused on researching biological means of mass suicide for Jones. Um, he looked into things like um, staph infections, botulinum toxin, things like that. A lot of the problems with those were that they were, you know, they're very slow acting and they, they um, take too long. So he was, but he was very interested in that sort of thing. Um, while all of this is going on and, and Jones is trying to keep his hold on, on Jonestown, his connections to the Guyanese 
government are becoming more strained. There are things that are going on in the government that are that are making his his foothold in in um, Ga- uh, Guyana a little uh, tenuous. Minister Development uh, Desmond Hoyt wrote an angry letter to the editor um, to the Guyanese Chronicle following a puff piece on Jonestown. He called it a handout, and he basically said, you know, you're you're kind of um, playing into the hands of these people, and there you know there are things that are going on in Jonestown that we don't know about. Um, another uh, foreign minister, Fred Wills, who was a supporter of Jones, um, he was fired for mishandling funds. So that's another person that um, supports um, Jones that, you know, he can't use. And suicide threats were being made to, um, were being sent to government officials demanding that Jonestown be left alone. You know, it, it, a lot of, you know, if you don't leave this alone, we're all going to kill ourselves, that sort of thing. So all of this is happening you know, all of these problems are happening in, in Jonestown. And about this time, the families back in San Francisco are still protesting the church. They're contacting government officials to try and get people to help them contact their family in Jonestown. It's very, like, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to get to people in Jonestown as it is. You know, you're trying to send them letters. You can't. You're trying to, you know, get in touch with them. You can't. They're all the way in Guyana. You know, you can't call them. You can't do any, you know, you can't get them on the Internet because obviously it doesn't exist yet. Um, or at least in, on, you know, a personal computer. So it's, you know, these are things that they, they, they really can't get in touch with their family and make sure that they're all right. So instead they try they get in touch with Congressman Leo Ryan. Leo Ryan has a really good reputation in uh, California as somebody who will push to get um, information. He went to Folsom Prison at one point and spent a week there to understand prison reform when he was in the state assembly. And he also went undercover as a substitute teacher in Watts to investigate living conditions in the area. So they ask him for help. And he also has a friend um, named Sam Houston, whose son Bob... Uh, died under mysterious circumstances, um, who was a temple member. So Congressman Ryan decides he's going to go to Guyana with a group of of people to find out what's going on. Ryan portrayed this solely as a fact-finding mission without bias. He just wanted to find out what was going on down there. Um, But that was not good enough. Um, Prior to leaving, his daughter overheard him receiving a threatening phone call from a temple member where he was told his safety in Jonestown could not be guaranteed. So he's already receiving threats before he even leaves. The group that he was going with included journalists like NBC reporter Don Harris and examiner writer Tim Reiterman, um, Jackie Spire, um, who was a an aide to the congressman. And Spire actually said that she located the congressman's will before leaving. She was really worried about going. She said at one point that um, in one interview that I saw that she um, she had just signed, um, you know, she had just gotten a new house or just gotten a new a mortgage or something like that. And she was really worried that she wasn't going to be able to come back for it. Um, and then concerned relatives like Sherwood Harris and the Stones. Um, the Stones were planning to stay in Georgetown since it was probably unlikely they were going to be able to get into Jonestown to see their son. Sherwin Harris was another concerned relative, and he was going to see his daughter, Leanne. Uh, her mother was Sharon Amos, and she was high up in the temple leadership. And they all stayed at um, 41 Lamaha Gardens in, in uh, Georgetown. So he was going to go see her there. Their group left at, on the 14th of November. 
So, you know, I mean, you have to keep in mind, this is, this is a very long trip, so it's going to take him a couple of days to get to, uh, to, uh, to Jonestown. At this point, Jonestown finds out that Senator Ryan is coming. Um, rumor, when these rumors start going around that the congressman is coming, they start, um, going around that they might have to, they, they might have to commit this revolutionary suicide. Um, Stephen and Jim Jones Jr., uh, the two sons, uh, they left on Tuesday the 14th with the Jonestown basketball team to go play a tournament in jo uh, Georgetown, encouraged by Marceline. Marceline really fought to get them to go. And uh, Stephen Jones said later that he thought maybe that she was trying to make sure that they got out of there before all hell broke loose. But who knows? Um Congressman Ryan arrives in Georgetown on November 15th in the evening, and his, his group, their group is met by Sharon Amos and other representatives of Jonestown. Sharon Amos uh, radios Jones, and he tells them that, that, that the, um, Ryan's group is determined to get in. He's going he's gonna to go. So Jones calls a white night meeting, and he speaks to everyone, and he basically tells them, you know, Ryan's here. He's coming. On the morning of the 15th, Ryan goes to the People's Temple Halfway House in Jonestown, at, in, in Georgetown, excuse me, at 41 Lamaha Gardens to meet members there. Um, Sharon Amos refuses to contact Jones for him. While he is there, um, Jim Jones radios to Stephen and gets Stephen on the radio and tells him that the basketball team needs to go back to Jonestown. Stephen says no. So uh, that doesn't make Jim Jones very happy. And he kind of has a fit on the other end of the phone. On um, the other end of the radio, excuse me. Um, after all of this, um, Ryan gets some chartered planes and they take the group to Port Kaituma Airstrip, which um, is this isolated airstrip. Um, you know, it's, it's six miles from Jonestown. It's near where they um, have to get off the boat for, uh, you know, the Kayatuma River, uh, you know, and it really kind of emphasizes to the people arriving just how far it would be for temple members who wanted to leave, who wanted to try and escape, how hard it would be. At this point, um, it's evening, and um, Ryan's group gets to Jonestown. They get on, you know, they're, they're on, a, um, on a truck. They ride down this road, they ride under the sign greetings, people, temple, uh, agricultural um, project. And when they get there, people are, you know, they're kind of putting on a show, you know, they, they put on a concert and uh, there are these performances in the pavilion for the sake of the congressman and his group. Uh, there is uh, the band, which is named the Jonestown Express, and they're performing. Um, there's a young man named Poncho Johnson who sings The Greatest Love of All. Um, so there's a lot going on. Um, the camera is out. Um, there's an NBC cameraman uh, named Robert Brown who's filming a lot of stuff. He actually um, is filming Jones talking to a couple of... Um, uh, uh, picnic table full of men and, and uh, John Victor Stone is standing right next to him this little boy and he actually makes the boy bare his teeth to show a resemblance in their dental structure as if that's some sort of proof of paternity um, 
he, um, this little boy is standing there and he, the whole time he's basically smiling at the camera and staring at the camera. I, I, I will admit that I can't, can't help but wonder if he was told to stare at the camera at all times. Um, one of the reporters, um, the uh, examiner reporter, Tim Reiterman, asked Jones about people not being able to leave and the threats of mass suicide. Um, he and Jones kind of rambled on. He just kind of went on this ramble and he made it seem as though this the visitors were a little literal physical threat. Um, he really kind of talked and talked and talked and really didn't say much. Um, so you know, it, it really didn't look like a bad place, but at the same time, Jones was kind of giving off this bad vibe. So you have all these people singing and dancing and everybody seems really happy. So Leah Ryan stands up, he takes the microphone and he says, I think that all of you know that I'm here to find out more about questions that have been raised about your operation here. Well, I can tell you right now that from the few conversations I've had with some of the folks here already this evening, that whatever the comments are, there are some people here who believe that this is the best thing to ever happen to them in their whole life. At which point the entire place bursts into cheers and applause. It's just, you know, he gets drowned out. He's just kind of standing there smiling, you know, just really impressed by what they see. But about this time, you have a, a temple member. His name is Vernon Gosney. He had come to Jonestown with his four-year-old son um, after uh, the death of his wife in childbirth, which was, you know, um, a few years earlier. So his son at that time was four. Um, he wanted to pass the congressman a note asking that he and another um, temple member, Monica Bagby, be taken out of Jonestown. Um, he had confided in his roommate, but he really didn't trust his roommate. He had, his roommate had been thinking about leaving and, and had been beaten. And since then he'd been kind of touchy. So Vernon Gosney was really nervous about, um, uh, telling him. So Vernon Gosney sees, um, Don Harris just standing around listening to music and he takes this note and he folds it up and he walks over and, 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 Gos and, and Don Harris is standing there with his arms folded. Gosney walks over and tucks a note into the crook of his arm and it falls to the ground. He kind of deftly, um, you know, just kind of, oh, you know, he, he, he kneels down, he picks it back up again and he, he hands it to Harris and he says, oh, you dropped this, uh, just kind of casually. And he tries to make it look like, you know, he didn't really pass my note, but there's a little boy who sees this and he yells, he passed a note, he passed a note. So Vernon Gosney just kind of wanders off before he gets in trouble. Don Harris takes the note to Ryan, to Leah Ryan and to his aide, Jackie Spear, Spire. And they start to realize that what they're seeing is a show. That night, um, Ryan and Spire and a couple other people stay at Jonestown while the rest of the group go to stay at a private home in Port, Port Kaituma. The next day, November 18th, uh, the reporters come back and, and they start to interview some of the family members uh, that they've been contacted about to verify whether or not they want to leave. Um, a lot of them are, are being, you know, are saying, no, no, I want to stay. You know, it's, it's one of the best places I've ever been. I'm learning a lot, that sort of thing. Um, at the same time, uh, shows are more, there's these more shows that are being put on to make Georgetown look better. Um, and they're all being recorded by the cameraman. If you look at some of the, the raw footage, there's pictures of, um, 
the girls drill team practicing a dance routine under a tent. Uh, there's kids playing a basketball game. Uh, there's some other kids watching cartoons in the pavilion. There's, you know, just everyday life going on. And Jones had allowed people um, to have the day off so, you know, they wouldn't be seen working that day. The day started off sunny, but after a while, uh, torrential rain moved in and it starts to pour. At a certain point, um, one temple member, Edith Parks, who's an older woman, she go goes up to Jackie Spire and she says, I'm being held prisoner and I want to leave. Um, she has seven family members and they had planned to uh, go off into the jungle. They had hidden containers of their belongings in the woods, but those containers of belongings had vanished. And now they thought that they may have been found out. Um, so at this point, they say, look, we want to go with you. When Jones finds out about this, he goes to the family and he offers to give them $5,000 and their passports if they would wait to leave. They refused. Uh, he really didn't want them to leave with Leo Ryan. You know, he didn't want them to go with them because, you know, that's more people going away. And he thought it made them look bad. At about this time, um... On the, on the video, actually, um, I do want to say, at the, on the video, um, um, the cameraman takes video of Jackie Spire taking their affidavits um, from the Parks family and saying, I just want to make sure that you do want to leave Jonestown. And Edith Parks and Dale Parks, um, uh, who is um, a younger man in his 20s, um, they are nodding and they say, yes, you know, we do want to leave. And, and Jackie Spire says, okay, I'm going to go and, and deal with this. And she walks away and the camera turns and focuses on Patty Parks, who is, um, I believe, Dale Parks' mother. Um she um, is seen very clearly um, in, in that picture. She looks very nervous and very scared. One of the um, one of the the clips that you you do see a lot when you watch um, documentaries and, and see news footage of Jonestown is a clip of a woman um, named Bonnie Simon. And Bonnie Simon is seen on this clip gripping her son Alvin and screaming, you bring those kids back here. You bring them back. Don't you take my kids. Except I'm, I'm doing it like this. She was shrill. She's like, don't you take them. You know, I, I don't want to make, I, you know, make something sound like I'm making fun of her. But she's, you bring those kids back here. I mean, it's shrill, high-pitched, agonizing, you know, this scream. At the time, the boy's father, Al, and his grandfather, Jose, were trying to get Alvin and his two sisters to the dump truck to leave Jonestown with the Ryan group. Bonnie was holding on to her son for dear life and cried out for mother, who's Marceline, and Marceline came to try and calm the situation down. Ultimately, Al and Jose, Simon, were unable to take the children. And so they left with the group, but they had to leave the children with Bonnie. Tension is starting to build. Um, 16 members in total asked to leave with the Ryan group. And as this tension is beginning to build, you have people who are staying in Jonestown who are really starting to give them these openly hostile looks. Jim Jones goes up to Vernon Gosney, who's about to leave. And he tells him not to speak to the reporters because they're all liars. And then he says, I just want you to know that you can come back to Jonestown and visit your son anytime you want. Um, Gosney, Gosney was worried about bringing his son back to the U.S. His son was mixed race, and 
there was, you know, he's, here he is, he's under tremendous stress. He's trying to decide what to do. You know, he needs to get out, but he's also worried about his son. So at that point, he really is not sure what to do. And he's under such stress that he basically elects to leave his son at Jonestown. He, he thinks at this point, you know, he'll be fine. I just, I have to get out of here and then I'll worry about getting him back. That kind of thing. NBC reporter John Harris um, takes the cameraman and he goes and he interviews um, Jim Jones and he asks about Gosney's note. He gives Gosney the note. He gives um, Jones the note. Jones looks at this note and he is kind of tense, but he said he basically defends it. He says, "Look, this is a man who wants to leave his son here. If this place is so bad, why would he leave his son here?" And um, you know. I, 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 Unfortunately, I think, you know, it, Don Harris doesn't say, you know, um, you know, well, is he being pressured to leave his son here? Or are you pressuring him? Um, but uh, the reporter does press him on, you know, well, on Gosney leaving and on other people leaving and how that affects him. And Jones just at that point just begs him, please just leave us in peace. Leave us alone. And and. You know, he's he's kind of begging them to leave, he, begging the reporter to leave. But at the same time, he is going to these other followers who are leaving and, and, and these followers of his who are who are deciding to leave with the group. And he's kind of passively, passive aggressively telling them, um, no, it's OK, you can leave. You can leave. You can go. You know, we'll miss you. You know, like he's kind of. I mean, the, the, it's not, you know, exact wording, but the message is kind of, the underlying message is clear, you know, um, you know, well, you can go, you know, you know, we'll, we'll miss you, you know, like, it's very, um, like I said, it's very passive aggressive. There's, there's an underlying tone in there that, that kind of makes his feelings clear. Vernon Gosney goes to, the, to Congressman Ryan and he says, look, you're in extreme danger. We need to go. Ryan tells him, you don't have to worry, you have the Congressional Shield of Protection around you, which Gosney, understandably, I think more than, understandably, in retrospect, um, kind of thinks he's being a little naive, you know, the Congressional Shield of Protection is not going to protect you really that well in Guyana, but... Um, at this point, Ryan is, is talking to Jones, uh, it goes to talk to Jones and he's, and he's kind of saying goodbye and saying, you know, well, we, you know, um, that sort of thing. And, and, um, Don Sly, who was the, um, husband of, of Neva Sly, who, who defected earlier on, um, comes up behind Leo Ryan with a knife and says, all right, motherfucker, you're going to die and tries to stab him. All the people who have already gotten the, on the truck, they were about to leave. And the truck stops. And they see Leo Ryan coming toward them. They've already heard this commotion. And Leo Ryan starts walking down the, the road toward them to get onto this, this truck. His shirt, his, he's got this button-up shirt, and it's wide open. And there's blood on it. Uh, the blood wasn't from him, though. It was just from these superficial cuts that um, Don Sly had. But um, Leo Ryan had had been had was going to stay and and bring along more defectors, but because of the attack, he decided, no, I'm getting on the the, the truck and we're getting out of here. Um, 
as they were leaving, in, in, um, as they were leaving, you see video of him walking down the road, and uh, at the point you uh, supposedly you see you see this um, guy in a green poncho, and that guy who is going to catch up with the the truck and, and get on it is a man named Larry Layton. Larry Layton, like I mentioned, uh, Deborah Layton before, that's his, that's her brother. He gets on the, he gets on the, the, the truck. And some of the departing members, and even some of the group of uh, reporters and, and the like, are kind of surprised he's there. He was really loyal to Jones. And he had been saying that he was loyal to Jones, and that he was happy to be at Jonestown. So the fact that he would get on the, the truck seems a little odd. And they start getting really nervous that he's there. Uh, the cameraman films with his camera the whole time that they're riding back to Port Kaituma to the airstrip. They get back to the airstrip and they're they're waiting around for the planes to come back. They um, and to be ready to fly. They're ready to leave at about ten after five. And in this video that you see, you see, um, you know, you can recognize a couple of people there. Um, you can see Jackie Spire. She's wearing this kind of navy blue sundress. Uh, Don Harris is in this blue leisure suit. And they're all kind of milling around the way you do when you're on a trip. And you're uh, getting ready to go somewhere. And you're just kind of waiting for, you know, planes to leave or, or, or you know, trains to leave or whatever. And a tractor pulls up pulling a trailer and Robert Brown turns the camera on the tractor and films about eight to 10 men with guns get out of the trailer and the truck is, well, the truck crosses the airstrip and comes around the plane and then these people get out and the men who are in this trailer start to shoot at the people who are standing there. Congressman Ryan gets shot. He tries to run under the plane so he can get some sort of, um, some sort of, uh, you know, cover, obviously. Uh, Robert Brown, uh, continues to film for as long as possible. He is, is filming and, and you can see video where, it, you know, he's lying on the ground and he's, the camera is tilted and you can see, you can see people walking with guns and, and shooting and, and he gets shot in the leg, and at one point, you know, he's shot, and and, and the camera stops, and and he, another, and the people are obviously walking around and, and shooting at the the those who are still around, who uh, who are lying on the ground, and and kind of finishing them off. Congressman Ryan is shot deliberately, point blank, three times to finish him off, to make sure that he's he's dead. Five people die at the airstrip. Uh, Leo Ryan, uh, Temple Defector Patty Parks, who was in the video um, earlier on with Ethel and, and, and Dale Parks. Reporter Don Harris, the man in the, the blue uh, leisure suit who Vernon Gosney passed his note to. NBC cameraman Robert Brown and photographer Greg Robinson. Ryan to this day is is the only sitting congressman who's ever been a congressperson who's ever been assassinated. Gabby Gifford is actually um, almost became the second a few years ago. But fortunately, she she survived her attack. Um, a dozen others were seriously wounded, including Jackie Spires. They were there and they were just lying on the ground. They kind of had to play dead. On 
one of the smaller plane, uh, one of the planes, the smaller plane, um, there was an otter and there was like a little Cessna. And Larry Layton had gotten on there with Monica Bagby, Dale Parks, and Vernon Gosney. As they're about to take off, Larry Layton pulls out a gun and he shoots at the pilot. He shoots at Monica Bagby and he shoots at Vernon Gosney. Dale Parks wrestles the gun away from Layton, and Larry Layton is disarmed and taken to Port Kaituma. Um, witnesses said that the shooters smiled and flashed victory signs as they climbed back on the truck and drove away. Um, there were some people who managed to get back into Port Kaituma um, to look for protection, to look for help. Uh, but there were some people who also ran into the, to the jungle to try and escape and to try and um, hide out, and they were not found until the next day. I think that includes Vernon Gosney. Vernon Gosney was, was shot in the stomach, and, and he actually, um, uh, he was found later on. Back at Jonestown, a call goes out over the speaker system at around 5 o'clock p.m. to come to the pavilion. Um, some people didn't come when they were called. Um, Hyacinth Thrash, who I mentioned earlier, she was an elderly woman who had joined People's Temple, um, she had followed uh, them all the way from Indiana um, with her sister Zipporah um, in 1955, and and she had I mean she'd followed them to California and then all the way down to to Georgetown and, and to Jonestown, and she uh, you know Zipporah was a true believer, but Hyacinth had really uh, developed a lot of doubts over the years about Jim Jones and she'd kind of gotten tired of all these, um, you know, the white knights and the suicide drills and all that. So this time when the, the call went out over the speaker system, Hyacinth Thrash hid under her bed when the alarm sounded and said, nope, I'm coming out. At this point, um, Jim Jones is there and he's wearing, he's wearing this red shirt and his, and his glasses and his sunglasses and he's sitting in his chair and he's, he orders the, the drinks to be prepared. Uh, the grape drink in question, the flavor aid from earlier, um, is taken out and it is going to contain a mix of potassium cyanide, thallium, pentagram, and chloral hydrate. So basically cyanide and um, other drugs to kind of make people calm. Uh, like I said, it was not Kool-Aid, it was flavor aid. It's was, um, so it's kind of a knockoff of Kool-Aid. Um, one, uh, temple member who worked in the kitchens, uh, Stanley Clayton, he had seen Larry Schacht, the doctor, and, uh, Joyce Touche come to the kitchen and take this large metal vet. Um, Larry Schacht had previously ordered a pound of sodium cyanide, um, of, of the cyanide from a, a chemical company in California for $8.85. A lethal dose of cyanide in a, an adult is 250 milligrams, so the amount that he ordered was enough to kill 1,800 people. A lot of cyanide. Um, so, like every other time that he spoke, Jones recorded audio of his speaking during this entire thing. Um, the audio, if you've ever listened to the death tapes, if you never want to listen to the death tapes, which is completely understandable, um, they are not the best quality. Um, he had been using these tapes over and over again. So there's ghosts of, 
other conversations of other sounds on this. You can hear what sounds like music sometimes, which they're obviously not playing music at this particular moment. Um, the death tapes start out with Jones saying, how very much I've loved you, how very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. Um, when he talks, his voice is slurred. It's slow. It's drugged. He doesn't sound good at all. He announces that the congressman is dead. He says that someone, he doesn't say who, but he says someone decided they were going to kill the, kill the congressman. Um, and now, and he's, you know, he's saying people are going to come and they're going to, um, they're going to attack, basically. They're going to parachute in. He says, they'll torture our children, they'll torture our people, they'll torture our seniors. He claims that they, quote-unquote, will parachute into Jonestown and shoot their children. They tends to stand for different things depending on, um, you know, what he's saying. And this, you know, sometimes it's the Guyanese Defense Forces, the UN, the US, um, you know, sometimes he specifies, sometimes he doesn't. But they is the all-seeing force in this. He says, if we can't live in peace, let's die in peace. Um, Tim Carter says that uh, he saw that uh, Maria Katsaris, who was one of Jones's um, uh, inner circle, came up to him and uh, Jones said, is there any way to make it taste less bitter? And Katsaris says, no, apparently not. And Jones says, is it quick? And Katsaris says, yeah, it's supposed to be quick. At this, at a particular point in the tape, it's not really, it's maybe only after about five, ten minutes, um, Jones asks for any dissenting opinions. It's kind of like in a, in a wedding. He, he basically says something along the lines of, if anybody has any, you know, any other opinion, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace. Um, so a woman named Christine Miller stands up to protest this call for a mass suicide. Um, Christine Miller was, um, she was a 6 year old woman. She was not... I don't want to say she wasn't a true believer, but she wasn't. Um, she, she seemed she comes off as a very sensible person. She stands up and she asks, "Is it too late for Russia?" Uh, Jones had said multiple times that if uh, you know worst comes to worst, they'll go to Russia. If something goes wrong, they'll go to Russia. And she's basically calling him out on that and saying, "Well, is it too late to go to Russia?" She asks him about a code that Jones said they were to give Russia in case of an emergency. Jones claims at this point that this is incorrect and that Russia was to give it to them instead. He kind of, you know, it, it kind of feels a lot like gaslighting. Like he, he probably, she, she's, she's probably right. That's probably exactly what he said. He probably said that they were going to give Russia this code and Russia would let them in. But Jones says, no, no, that's wrong. You know, and, and, um, you know, he goes off on, on that. And she kind of says at one point, if we destroy ourselves, we're defeated. You know, we let them, the enemy, defeat us. That's her quote. Uh, but Jones is, is kind of going off on his rant. Um, he mentions Tim Stone multiple times. Um, he's kind of makes it sound like Jim Stone's going to parachute in himself and kill some people the way he makes it sound. Um, Christine says that she thinks the babies deserve a chance. She also asks Jones if he's willing to see John Victor Stone die. Um, and Jones acts, acts as if she asked if he thought Joan was more, John was more important than the other children. Which, you know, he did. she didn't, but he, 
that's not exactly what she said, but he kind of makes it seem like, you know, well, in that case, don't you, do you want to see any of them killed? And it's, it's really, he's doing, he's using a lot of double speak and kind of, um, saying things that she's not really saying. Um, he, he claims at one point that, yeah, you know, I'm making a call to Russia. What more do you want? Kind of that's, you know, to, you know, paraphrased and, you know, kind of making it sound like, um, she's asking for a lot just for him to call Russia in the first place, even though that was what they were supposed to do in emergency, according to him. Um, he points out at one point that most of the people who left were white and he's sort of playing on, you know, at the time, I don't believe white privilege was really a phrase, but he's kind of playing along with people's understanding that these are people who have white privilege. These are people who can go back to America and they're not going to face the same discrimination as people, um, you know, the black supporters of the temple, the black temple members who would go back and still have to face, you know, um, face racism, racism and bigotry. You know, the white members don't have to face that in the same, you know, so he's kind of pointing that out in a way that um, makes it seem like, you know, they have an advantage that the others don't, you know, they're, um, you know, kind of turning the group, trying to turn the group against them. Christine says that others, um, that others there are being mean to her, others are shouting at her, you know, she's kind of saying, you know, let me talk, let me talk, you know, can you make them stop talking to me like that? And he says, look, I'm not talking to you like that. And, you know, you know, I'm in charge and it's not your place to talk to me like that. And eventually Christine Miller is shouted down by everybody else. Everybody kind of says, you know, he, he, you know, you got to this point because of Jim Jones, you got here because of father and because of father's love and support. And at a certain point, she's, there's so much pressure that she just kind of backs down. Tim Carter says that around this point, people with guns are starting to surround the pavilion, the learning crew and all of these different, you know, security members are surrounding the pavilion with guns which is just more pressure on these people. And at this point, they start giving out the poison. Um, children were being given the drink by their parents before the adults would take the poison. They were being, um, you know, it was either being drunk, it was squirted into the mouths of, of the children, or it was injected in, into syringes. If you listen to the tapes, um, it's very loud. And it's very screaming, it's very screamy and, and crying. And there's a lot of, you know, at first you don't hear a lot, but as it goes on, the children start to cry and they, they're getting very upset. And that's, you know, that letter that I read at the beginning of the podcast, you know, it makes it seem like it was calm and quiet and everybody just went up and took the, you know, took the drink and it really isn't what happened. Maria Katsaris gets on the microphone and speaks and tells people that children, the children aren't crying because they're in pain. The drink is just a little bitter. That's what it is. Stanley Clayton had left the kitchen and he had gone to uh, the pavilion with everybody else. And he had, was standing with his wife when this 15-year-old boy named Thurman Guy, had take, who had t already taken the, the uh, poison, bumps into him and falls to the ground and starts going into convulsions and frothing at the mouth. And, and people are just standing around horrified at this point, just seeing this. So he picks up the boy and, and takes him up at the pavilion, but as he's doing this, the boy dies in his arms. And 
yeah, I mean, I mean, the tapes are awful. The tapes are awful to listen to. You can hear people screaming. You can hear people crying. Um, Jones is saying things like die with respect, die with a degree of dignity. You know, death is just stepping over into another plane. At one point he says free at last. He's like quoting Martin Luther King and you kind of want to just, you know, it's very frustrating to hear him saying something like that. And then he says, adults, I call on you to stop this nonsense. He's trying to get the adults to calmly take this this poison to stop exciting the children. He kind of wants them to go, you know, oh, look, you know, don't get excited. Don't get emotional. You're making the children cry. Tim Carter, at this point, sees his son in his wife's arms um, having cyanide being injected into his mouth. So, you know, he's seeing all of this happen. And Jones is, you know, telling people, um, you know, quickly, quickly, quickly. And you have people like, um, you know, Tim Carter and, and Hugh Fortson and, and Stanley Clayton. And they're all, you know, not only are they seeing people die around them, but they all had their wives who took the poison and lied down and, and died there in Jonestown. And sometimes, you know, for each of them, children as well. Jones, at this point, says on the tape, we laid down, we got tired. We didn't commit suicide. It was an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. Uh, witnesses um, who survived said that Marceline was walking around hugging people and saying, I'll see you in the next life. And you have Stanley Clayton, who was there. And Stanley Clayton, his wife had taken the potion you know she her entire family had taken the potion and they were lying there dead and she says look you can leave i can't i can't deal with this i can't you know i have to i have to do this so she took the she took it and he laid her down with her family and then he managed to sneak into the jungle it was a lot of um he was walking around and he was saying oh i'm looking for this person and then he'd go you know i was looking to die with this person i wanted to die with this person you know and then he kind of he kind of wandered you know managed to sneak into the jungle he hid there for about an hour or so until everything quieted down at that point he snuck back into jonestown to find his passport he went to the office to go look for this passport and he's digging through and they're all in alphabetical order and he, he goes to find his and at that point he hears a single gunshot. He took his passport and he, and he left. He, he snuck out into the jungle. Um, it, it would be found that everybody died. Everyone in, in Jonestown died of cyanide poisoning except for Jim, jo Jim Jones and a woman named Annie Moore who was in um, his inner circle and who was uh, who was in uh, his headquarters at the time with a group of other people, they had both died from gunshot wounds to the head. Um, whether or not they had shot themselves is unknown. Um, back in Georgetown, Sherwin Harris goes to meet with his daughter Leanne at 41 Lamaha Gardens in Georgetown. Um, Leanne really doesn't show any sign to Sherman that she's, she's anxious, she's shy, she's angry, upset, anything like that. She doesn't, she just seems to be happy and nice, you know, happy to see him and she's being really kind to him and, and, and just kind of, um, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And meanwhile, um, 
Sharon has gone into the radio room and has spoken with um, Jim Jones and is told to, open quotes, take care of everyone there, close quotes, basically to take revenge. Um, the concerned relatives, of course, were the ones who had priority in being taken care of. Leanne is pulled aside at this point, um, at that point, and told by Sharon that they've been ordered to die. And Leanne, um, Stephen Jones was there at the time, and, and she, he said that Leanne very calmly says, oh, okay, um, should I get Dad to leave? And and Sharon says, yes, you know, get him to go home. You know, get him to go back to his hotel. So Sherwin um, Harris arranges to meet Leanne the next day to go fishing, to go, you know, to go spend time together. And after he leaves, Sharon Amos takes her two younger children, Kristen and Martin, into the bathroom. And Leanne goes with them. And Sharon has a knife and she stabs them both to death. And then she and Leanne, um, uh, both had their necks sliced, um, depending on, uh, sliced open, um, depending on what source you read, either they sliced each other's necks or, um, one sliced one's neck and one sliced the other's neck, what, you know, whatever it was, you know, they all, all four of them did end up dead in that bathroom. Now, following the massacre, there were survivors. Hyacinth Thrash, who had hidden under her bed, emerged the next morning. She basically slept under there all night long. And she came out the next morning, and she didn't know what she was going to find. And she walked out, and she looked around, and she was just shocked. And she... I mean, she really had no way of getting out of there, so she ended up having to stay until the next day when a group of, of uh, Guyanese soldiers arrived and found the carnage there. So she basically had to stay there two nights in a row. Not, you know, not exactly, you know, a, kind of a nightmarish scenario, really. Um, a small group of 11 people had left the morning of the 18th. Uh, they were headed up the railroad tracks to Matthews Ridge, 30 miles away. They had planned to escape, and they figured that with the Ryan visit, it would be excellent cover. So they said, oh, we're going for a picnic. And what they were actually doing was escaping. There were three young men who were at Jonestown um, during the massacre. Uh, Stanley Clayton, Grover Cleveland Davis, and um, o Odell Rhodes. And they just didn't participate. They just, they didn't take... Um, the poison they managed to hide. Um, I believe Grover Davis hidden it in a um, uh, hidden a ditch and just kind of pretend, played dead. And, and Steely Clayton and Odell Rhodes both uh, went into the jungle to hide out. Um, there were people who were on procurement missions. Um, uh, three of Jones's sons, Stephen, Tim, uh, uh, Jim Jones Jr. and Timothy, were not at Jonestown. Um, about 80 people were staying at Lamaha Gardens in Georgetown, including the basketball team with uh, Stephen and Jimmy Jones. Um, part of the final orders that Jones passed on 
or to go and, and murder, murder, murder temple enemies, such as the concerned relatives who were staying at the Pegasus Hotel. But Stephen Jones kind of stepped up and he called the temple in California and he cut off those orders uh, at the root. He basically said, you know, he made sure that that, that wasn't going to happen. Um, three of the men who were at Jonestown, Michael Prokes and Tim and Mike Carter, were given a suitcase of money on the day of the massacre and ordered to deliver it to the Soviet embassy in Georgetown. You know, why, um, you know, they didn't get very far and they did end up getting arrested. So, um, you know, there was that. Survivors from Jonestown who had walked out of the encampment arrived in Port Kaituma at two in the morning and told authorities that Jones was getting people to kill themselves. At first, they really weren't believed about it. But when more people were kind of stepping up and saying this was happening, authorities went there and they arrived at daybreak. Initially, when the authorities arrived there, they thought the body count was about 400. But once they started moving the bodies, which they really couldn't do until the the, you know, the coroner and, and those sorts of people got there, they found that the bodies had been stacked one on top of another. Um, so, you know, what would end up happening is, of course, the babies had died first, so they would lay down the baby. And then, um, you know, the mother would take the medication, you know, take the poison. And, and so she would lie down on top of the baby and then the husband would take the medication and lie down on top of the wife. So it looks like there's one body there when they're kind of packed in tight like that. But then you take that, you know, and you've got two other bodies under there. So that was why um, it went from 400 and then went up to 900. At first, the U.S. State Department requested to be able to bury the bodies in Jonestown, but the Guyanese government refused to let them, them bury the bodies in situ. An Army Graves Registration Team came to Jonestown, and they bagged the remains, which were then transport, transported to Dover Air Force Base for FBI identification. Routine embalming began almost immediately, uh, but that had the side effect of destroying forensic evidence. So, I mean, obviously it's really hard to, you know, determine if somebody died of cyanide poisoning if they've been embalmed. About 400 of the bodies were unidentified or unclaimed, the majority of whom were children. I mean, you had a lot of people who couldn't afford to, to claim their, their relatives. You had people who just, they didn't want to admit that their, their relative died in a cult and a mass suicide. So they really weren't going to take, uh, you know, this body back and bury it. At the same time, um, back in, back in, um, not long after, excuse me, back in San Francisco, on November 27th, George Moscone and Harvey Milk were mur murdered by Dan White in San Francisco. So, you know, in San Francisco, you have the combination of the Jonestown Massacre with all of these people who had come from San Francisco who had died in, in the jungle in Guyana and Guyana and the Moscone Milk murders. And San Francisco is just in a state of absolute mourning. And, if, and then, of course, you have people who are questioning whether or not um, George Moscone and Harvey Milk being murdered had been influenced by the Jonestown Massacre. I mean, it, not really, it turns out, but, you know, that sort of, it was in the air at the time. When it came to the temple, the lawyers for the temple fi filed for bankruptcy on behalf of the temple in December 1978. 
Um, Robert Fabian, who is the lawyer appointed receiver of the assets, located $8.5 million in banks around the world in addition to San Francisco assets. $1.8 billion in claims were made against People's Temple, but only about $13 million ended up being paid out. And in November 1983, the People's Temple was dissolved as a nonprofit corporation. The, the building itself at 1859 Geary in San Francisco was sold to a Korean Presbyterian church in auction, and they occupied the building for about a decade. After that, it was, it was damaged in the Loma Prieta earthquake and torn down to be replaced by a post office building. Excuse me, a post office building. So um, the building isn't there anymore. Um, it's now a post office. Um, Larry Leighton, um, who was the man who had been on the plane and who had shot the people on the plane and um, run, run off after that, or who had been taken into custody, excuse me, um, he his connection to the People's Temple um, was beginning to become strained before all of this. Um, his sister Debbie had been the financial secretary, as I said, but she had defected to, from Jonestown to the U.S. Embassy in Guyana in May of 1978. Um, their mother, Lisa, died in Jonestown not long before the massacre, too. So he was very, um, you know, suffice it to say, he was probably a little emotionally unstable by the time um, the massacre came around. And uh, Ryan came to visit, and, and so, um, you know, a stressful situation made worse. In 1986, um, Larry Layton was convicted of conspiracy in the murder of Leo Ryan. Uh, that made him the only Temple member tried for crimes related to the events in Jonestown. He was sentenced in 1987 to concurrent sentences of life in prison with 15 extra years on other charges. Uh, but he was eligible for, for parole in five years. And he was actually released from prison in April 2002. Now, one of the m men who uh, survived Jonestown, Michael Prokes, who was one of the three men who was supposed to carry money to the Soviet embassy in Georgetown, uh, he was a former broadcast journalist who left his job to become the temple's main spokesperson and press contact. And... On March 13, 1979, Prokes called a press conference in a Modesto motel room. Eight reporters showed up and they listened to him read a prepared statement. And then Prokes went into the bathroom, he closed the door, he turned on the faucet, and he shot himself in the head with a 38 revolver. Another um, tragedy that happened in the in the wake of the Jonestown massacre was with Alan and Jean Mills. Uh, they were, their names were originally um, Elmer and Deanne Myrtle, and they defected in October of 1975 and changed their names to Alan Jean Mills. They opened the Human Freedom Center to assist Temple members who defected, and they actually helped with the concerned relatives. They were um, trying to help people escape from the Temple. On February 26, 1980, they were found murdered in their home in Berkeley, and no suspects were ever identified. It's kind of mysterious, um, kind of makes you wonder. Um, but since then, every year, the um, Jonestown Memorial occurs on the anniversary of the massacre in Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California. Um, there's a San Francisco interfaith group who tried to find a cemetery which would take the 400 unclaimed bodies. Um, it took a while. Uh, but they finally found Evergreen Cemetery. 
And there were four memorial plaques which were added there in 2011 with all of the victims listed, which included Jim Jones, which kind of, you know, caused a little controversy that you have Jim Jones on that memorial plaque. The memorial is co conducted every year by Reverend Genona Norwood, whose mother, aunts, and cousins all died at uh, Jonestown. Jackie Spire, who was the aide to Leo Ryan, she currently serves in the U.S. as the U.S. representative for California's 14th district, and she's representing a lot of the areas as Leo Ryan. So it's kind of really interesting uh, that she did move on to do that. Um, there was also there was an H ABC special, um, I want to say about 10 years ago, um, and Stephen Jones and Jim Jones Jr. returned to Jonestown. Um, for that special. It's actually kind of interesting to see. Jim, uh, Stephen Jones was really affected by it. Um, you could tell that he was really, um, really moved to be there and really upset to find that when they got to the position, it was gone. Everything was gone. You know, the, the, the pavilions and the buildings and everything was gone. You know, there were, there were some signs that people had been there, but you had to look. And he got really upset and he was, you know, he cried and, and, um, but he kind of went out and he went out into the jungle, uh, and explored. Um, and Jim Jones Jr. showed up with his kids and he wanted to show them Jonestown. And he seemed a little more, I don't want to say excited, but I think there was something more positive about his experience than Stephen Jones. I, well, I don't want to say Chazer. It sounds really like they were happy to be there. They weren't so much happy as, um, you know, Jim Jones seemed to kind of, uh, Jim Jones Jr. seemed to kind of be, okay, you know, this is part of yeah, our history. This is part of our family. You have to, you know, this is, you have to see this place. It really is a beautiful place. It just has a terrible story behind it. Um, and as part of the episode, Jim actually found one of the vats used in the massacre. They were kind of wandering around, and he found one of the metal vats. You know, crushed and destroyed, but, you know, it's, it was still there, so. When it comes to the Jonestown Massacre, I always kind of feel a little weird, because it's, I find it fascinating, but at the same time, just reading about it and listening to this stuff, I mean... I could understand why people joined this group. And I never feel that way about cults because, you know, I don't, you know I'm not going to get really deep into it, but I, I, I was raised Catholic and I'm now an atheist. And so, you know, my experience with church has not always been a good one. But you know, the way that Jones talked to people and the way that people were drawn into this church it sounds appealing like it sounds you know there's a, well there's a reason for that you know you have to make it appealing for people to come there but at the same time the goals that they were trying for the racial equality and the social justice and the, and the supporting community and all those kind of things they're all things that i would support and it seems kind of you know um understandable that people will go yes i want to see these things i want to see equality and i want to see um I want to see us supporting each other and I want to see us, you know, taking care of our elderly and taking care of children and, and all of these things and, and see, you know, um, um, acceptance and, and all kinds of different things, um, you know, and all of these positive things were used by Jim Jones for his own selfish purposes. Um, 
there, um, uh, Deborah Lee in, in one of the documentaries, uh, the PBS documentary, um, the life and death of people sample, which is really good. Um, she says something along the lines, at the very beginning of, you know, people don't join a cult. They join a political movement. They join up with a group of like-minded people to try and make the world a better place. And that's the, the, um, that's the thing about Jonestown that kind of hits home for me is because when you look at people's temple and you look at sort of the public face of it, it's really attractive. It seems like a really great place with really good people who just want to do good things. And when you look at the survivors and you listen to their stories, they are people who are really good people who just want to do good things. And they are, you know, they were hindered by the fact, but that they were led by someone who was selfish, who was um, mentally unstable, who um, was um, a, a sexually assaulting people, who was just an awful human being. And, you know, I, I don't like using the word psychopath because of, uh, you know, it, it's not a good word and it's not... Um, um, it's not medically accurate in this day and age, I think is probably the best way to put it. I know that it's, it's very, you know, it's ableist and it's, it's not, um, it's not even, you know, it's medically correct. I don't even think at this time, um, you know, but the behavior of Jim Jones is just so troublesome from the very beginning. And the one thing that you, all you, you get from his story is that here's somebody who learned what people want to hear and gave it to them in spades until he had them under underfoot and then just did a 180 or a 360. <laughs> it's just a 180. Um, and he just used, um, you know, he used them to get what he wanted and then. I mean, he just went to an extreme that ended up with uh, killing 900 people. If if you ever see pictures of, of Jonestown, I mean, if you probably, if you know anything about Jonestown, you probably see the pictures of them flying um, overhead and taking pictures of, of after the massacre where you just see bodies everywhere. And you have to imagine, you're looking at this picture and it's only, you're only seeing a about 400 people that's you know that's why the police and the authorities and everybody who arrived there thought that it was only 400 people because you're really not seeing the extra layer of bodies that's underneath it you're not seeing the children you're not seeing um a lot of the the dead and you and you're not seeing the people who died at the airstrip either you know the airstrip alone counts as, as a disaster but what happened at jonestown is is a, a massacre. It's just a disaster of such scale. It's it's hard to wrap your mind around, especially considering that it was man-made as opposed to, you know, it's not, you know, it's not an earthquake. It's not a tsunami. It's not any of those things. It's just uh, man being flawed and, and, you know, one man manning, managing to manipulate so many people and in the end, he took all of them with him. The next disaster is not going to get any more happy. Um, <laughs> it's, um, 
Um, I'm going to be doing my first um, mass shooting um, episode after this. The next episode, I'm not going to say which one, because I try to avoid saying which disaster I'm doing for as long as possible, but um, this particular um, uh, shooting was requested by a friend, so I plan to um, do a little research and get into that, and, and just, just like with this episode and every episode, you know, no conspiracy theories, we're going straight with the facts that we have as we have them. Um, I do, you know, want to warn ahead, you know, if anybody wants to avoid listening to an episode about um, mass shootings, you're going to want to skip the next one. Um, and after that is the movie break. If anybody has any requests for the movie break, feel free to go on Facebook or Twitter and ask for it. Um, and until then, stay safe.